Good morning. In the beginning of a new series, actually, we are continuing on with a series that we started and then we interrupted and that we'll be returning to. We're going through Romans, and we're going to be going through the parts of that book that tell us how to live. Romans is divided into a couple of sections. The first 11 chapters of the letter focuses on what to believe. The last five focus on how to behave. And this is Paul's pattern when he addresses God and what God wants of us. He clarifies belief, then he clarifies behavior. And that's why the first 11 chapters clarify how we are to believe and the last five on how we are to behave. First, Paul deals with straight thinking. That's orthodoxy. Then he deals with straight acting. That's orthopraxy. And so orthodoxy, then orthopraxy, belief, then behavior. And what we find is the mercy of God is the fulcrum that balances believing and behaving. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 12, which is kind of the transitional verse. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. It talks about the mercy of God and the will of God. That's the way it works. The mercy of God is the motive for obeying the will of God. And then when he talks about the will of God in chapter 12, he considers the will of God and our relationship with the church. That's what we looked at when we talked about the will of God. Then in chapter 13, it takes a right turn. It talks about the will of God and our relationship with the state. Chapter 12 talks about God's will in sacred settings. Chapter 13, God's will in secular settings. And with that in mind, let's read Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 2, as we begin this series on the law of God considering one nation under God. Paul writes, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God, consequently. He who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. There's three questions, three focuses in looking at a place in the Bible he's trying to figure out observation, interpretation, application. It's in that order. Observation. You answer the question, what does it say? Interpretation. You answer the question, what does it mean? Application. You answer the question, what does it mean to me? Observation. What does it mean? Interpretation. I'm sorry. Observation. What does it say? Interpretation. What does it mean? Application, what does it mean to me? Let's try to use those three things then as we unpack 
this verse and try to figure out what it says and what it means and what it means to us. First of all, what does it say? The Bible is clear when it says that God is in control of government, and certainly that's what this passage is indicating. All authority really comes underneath God. He's chief. And so all authority comes, is underneath his authority. Um, Isaiah writes it this way, Do you not know? Have you not heard? In Isaiah 40, I'm, going to re- I'm just going to read it. It's not in your worship folder. Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood? Since the earth was founded, he, God, sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. God says, to whom will you compare me? God says, or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes. Look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. We hear verses like that. It's one thing to hear a passage like this and be in a church looking forward to a lunch with the family would be a very different thing if we were meeting in a dark room in the dead of night desperately hoping the authorities weren't going to find out that we were meeting here. I was never in jeopardy in China, but I was followed by Public Security Bureau personnel. Again, if I wasn't in trouble, if I was caught doing something as a person who was a teacher but involved in other kind of Christian activities, they would have shipped me out. They wouldn't have put me in prison. But those who I worked with, they would have been put in prison. That's why when I remember going to meetings in Qingdao, which was another city in China, and we met in an apartment building. There was going to be about 75 people that are going to cram into an apartment complex, apartment room, actually. And some came at 8, 10, and others were told to come at 8.20. Others were told to come at 8.30, because you can't pile into a place like that because it would advertise that a meeting's happening, and you didn't want to do that. I think China is a little bit looser now. At some point, they might even have church building. That seems to be the way it's heading. I'm not sure about that. Anyways, um, but when you think about that, what does this passage mean for somebody who lived under Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge? Every government has been established by God? Submit to the governing authorities? Really? Idi Amin in Uganda? Really? Adolf Hitler? Nazi Germany? ISIS? ISIS takes over government, you submit to the governing authorities? Does it mean that Christians were wrong for opposing the Holocaust? I mean, after all, the 
Bible says everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. That's what it seems to say, and I guess that's why we ask the question, what does it say? But then we have to address the question, what's the second one? What does it mean? What does this mean? Let's think about that. One of the first lessons I learned in seminary, we learned it over and over, that there are two rules for interpreting the Bible correctly. Two rules you always keep in mind. Rule number, and these are them, the proper interpretation of a passage is that which the original readers would have understood. What did they hear? How did they understand this passage? That's the proper interpretation of a passage is what they would have understood, which means you can't just plop into a passage, say, well, it seems to be saying this to me, and that's not necessarily so. It's not what we have to understand what they were thinking at the time. And the second thing is, let Scripture interpret Scripture. We'll use both of them as we try to think about this passage. Rule number one, the proper interpretation is that which the original readers would have understood. God could have communicated himself to mankind via, well, he did what he did at Christmas time. He, I think an angel and the angels expressed some things. Um, but that didn't, God doesn't speak that way. He seems more in general to speak through men and women who were time-bound and culture-bound. What do I mean by that? by men and women who lived in the first century, who thought like first century men and women. Therefore, to understand what they wrote, we need to understand what the thinking was like in the first century. God doesn't communicate himself through timeless principles. There are some, but he communicates through time-bound people. And so um, we need to understand to whom Paul was speaking, how they would have understood the letter. Not doing so will lead us to make some inferences that, that might create problems. Again, the proper interpretation is what the original readers would have understood. So we've got to ask a couple questions. Okay. Um, historic, literary context. What's happening in the letter? So when we come to Romans 13, 1 and 2, what else is happening in the letter that would help us to understand why he says what he says? And what's happening in the world at the time? The literary context, the the historical context, you've heard this before, and it's we heard this all the time in seminary. Text without context is pretext. What that means, if you take a text of the Bible, you don't provide a context for it. It's a pretext to say what you want it to say. So we have to do the work of figuring out what is what what's happening here? What's happening? Literary context, what's happening in the letter? Again, the, the pivotal point that goes between the first 11 and the last five chapters, of which chapter 13 is one of that section, is this. I already read it, but listen to it. Paul says, therefore, in light of everything that's come before, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let me read you the context. It talks about the mercy of God. What does the mercy of God mean? It speaks about the way that God's dealt with Israel and with 
Gentiles, who are Jews and Gentiles. Listen to what it says. It's actually in your sheet. Look at what it says in Romans 11, 25 through 29. I'm going to read that follow along. Can text without context is pretext. So what we want to do, we want to read kind of what came before in order to figure out what has he been thinking about and how does that affect our understanding of what he says in Romans 13. Well, here's what he says. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. What's happening, Gentile believers are looking at Jews and saying, how come they don't believe in this stuff? After all, we're using the Bible that the Jews use. At this time in the early church, the only Bible available was the Old Testament scriptures. That was the Bible the Jews used. And the Gentiles were using that same Bible, that same scripture, but were interpreting differently than Jews had. And that created a sense of, Confusion. Um, they had this Bible longer. Why don't they think of it the same way we do? I mean, they look to these scriptures. They don't believe Jesus is God, so why should we? And what Paul's explaining is Israel has experienced a hardening in part. It wasn't God's intent for lots of Jews to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. It wasn't his purpose. They didn't drop the ball. It was only God's purpose for a portion to come out to be able to be those who would help the Gentile church be established, and they experienced a hardening. God's not done with Israel. When the full number of the Gentiles has come in, God's going to put up a stop sign. He has a stop sign up to Israel now relative to belief, but then that's going to flip. Red light, green light, and and he will, there will be a, a mass belief of the Jews in God and the things that he communicates to them at that time. Anyways, look, it goes on, and so all Israel will be saved. Now, not every single Israelite, but in the beginning, only a small percentage of Israelites believed. But when God puts the stop sign for the Gentiles and the green light for the Jews, from every part of Israel they're going to believe. Not every person, but every section of Israelite culture will have people who believe. I think that's what it's saying. Um, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godliness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. They weren't supposed to believe in Jesus. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs because God's gift and his call are irrevocable. The word irrevocable means God doesn't repent of it. God is not saying as, I don't hear it very often, but every once in a while, I hear somebody teaching from the Bible who indicates, yeah, boy, those, those Jews, they really dropped the ball. And God ended up saying, okay, that's, I tried. And I'm really sorry I reached out my hands to the Jews. That is not God's response at all. God does not choose someone and then let them go because they didn't pass muster. It's just not the way it works. God's gifts and his call, he doesn't repent of them. He doesn't say, oh, I wish I hadn't called you. You're a bitter disappointment to me. 
God doesn't deal with that kind of disillusionment because, frankly, God isn't illusioned with you in the first place. To be disillusioned, he would have had to have been illusioned. God would never look at you and say, I, I, Jesus, get over here. I, did you see what she just did? Right, the Father and the Son are talking. Spirit, get over here. Did you see? I, 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 I didn't see that coming. God, God is never going to be disillusioned with you because that means he will have had to have been illusioned. And he isn't illusioned about you. Your fear doesn't frighten him. He understands it perfectly. And to the degree we understand that he understands it perfectly, causes us to be a little more honest with him, a little more open with him. Um, the only Bible, again, was the Old Testament. The Old Testament of the Bible clearly identifies God's kingdom with Israel. In the Old Testament, it clearly says, in order to be part of God's kingdom, you have to be a Jew. That's what it says in the Old Testament, a number of different places. If you're not a Jew, you're out of luck. So Jewish believers at that time still, and Jews in general, and some Jewish believers figured that in order to be a Christian, you had to become a Jew. That's the only route, because the Old Testament says God, children of Israel. And, and so in this letter, what Paul is doing, he is really doing something very radical. What he's saying to Gentiles, you don't need to become Jewish in order to be children of God. In fact, you are not second-class spiritual citizens. Ten percent of the Roman Empire was Jewish, and the vast majority of Jews strongly strongly opposed Paul's interpretation of the Old Testament. And what they were saying, you can't trust what he's saying. He's misrepresenting the Bible. And, And Gentile Christians would have felt insecure. That's the literary context. What Paul's trying to do with Gentiles, encourage them. He's trying to encourage them, saying, you're not second-class spiritual citizens. That God's intent before the beginning of time was to have a church comprised both of Jews and Gentiles. And God always does what he sets out to do. That's the literary context. He's trying to encourage Gentiles. The historical context, what's happening in the world? Um, again, this is the political situation at the time. If you were a Jew, what you believed is that the Messiah is going to come. And he's going to be a Messiah like David. And what David was like, a warlord, a very, and him and his son, very, very powerful king knocked over kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. And in Solomon's day, Israel was in its heyday. I mean, their borders were all over the place, and Israel was powerful. And then the Assyrians came. And then the Babylonians came. And then the Persians. And then the Greeks. And then the Romans. Conquest, 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 conquest. And now, if you were a Jew living in Jerusalem and a Roman soldier came, hey, come here, here, take my, take my shield and carry it. You had to carry it. You had to carry it because you were under the dominion of Rome and you hated it. You are children of God. And God has always been 
a champion of Israel. And that's... Scripture would have been cited as evidence that in order to be a Christian, Romans needed to lobby for the sovereignty of the Jewish nation. So here's what, if this would have been a Christian church at the time, and there would have been meetings where you would have heard this type of thing. You read in the Bible, don't you, that God will restore Jerusalem? You read that in the Bible? How many read that in the Bible? Okay, in the Old Testament. What are you doing, Roman citizens, to advocate for the freedom of Rome, for the freedom of Israel? Are you lobbying your senators? How can you call yourself a Christian? And not lobby for the freedom of Israel. You call yourself Christians. And they, and they were thinking, oh boy, boy that, they, have a, they have a good point there. Maybe I, maybe I need to do that. And um, you know what I think? As a, as a Roman citizen and a Jewish leader, you imagine Paul dealt with that pressure? Imagine, do you imagine he's a leader in Israel? And he's a Roman citizen. How much do you think Paul was lobbied to work in Rome to deliver the people from being under the dominion of Rome? Do you imagine that? I think he hit with it all the time. In fact, you know what I think happened? Paul knew Jesus. He would have been alive at the time Jesus was. And, in fact, you remember what happened on the way to Damascus when Paul was going there to beat up Christians? Remember what Jesus said to him? He said, I heard a voice, Paul says, saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. We've talked about this before, but let me explain it again. Jesus says this, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he asks a question and answers it. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad is a cattle prod. It's something with a sharp point that you stick in an animal to get them to move in a particular direction. Now, I'm going to tell you, they used goads in Israel. Now, let me read a, a section of Scripture in First Samuel. This is when they were under the dominion of the Philistines. Remember David and Goliath, before that whole thing worked out. Uh, here's what it says. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plowshares and mattocks, a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes, and for repointing goads. The reason why you would repoint a goad at that time, that's the only weapon that you had. If you were under Philistines, you weren't allowed to have weapons. So you know what you would use a goad for? That's the only weapon you could use. And so the goad became a system, a symbol of resistance. Pick up your goads. Pick up your goads. We're going to go against the Philistines. And if we have to attack them with goads, we're going to do that, right? And at the time, when Jesus says it's hard for you to kick against the goads, you know what I think is happening? Paul's fellow Pharisees are goading him into vying for Jewish liberation. Paul, why aren't you doing more? And you know what I think Paul does? Because he, he's divided. He's a Roman citizen. So he can't go against Rome, but he's a Jewish leader. So he cares about the Jews. Do you see the pressure? You know what he ends up doing? I know what I'll do. And I'll placate my Jewish 
friends, and I will not offend the Romans because the Romans don't know about the Christians. They don't really trust them, and the Jews hate them. I know what I'll do. I'm going to kill Christians. That's where I can make peace inside. I might not be able to argue for the liberation of Israel, but I'll tell you what I can do. I can go after those followers of Jesus. And that's what he does until he runs into Jesus. And Jesus says, Paul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard to kick against the goads. And you know what I think he sees? And by the way, Paul, I'm not carrying a goad. See, God doesn't goad. Some people think that what, God, what Jesus was saying, that God had been goading Paul. Jesus is God, you know. And, 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 you know, Paul is kicking against the gold and stop the That's not what's happening. It's not what happened. You know, because the deal is, God doesn't gold. He doesn't need to. When God tries to get Paul's attention, does he have to goad him? He knocks him on his keister. I mean, he just knocks him flat off his horse and blinds him. And God doesn't have to be subtle when he when he's powerful. He's very powerful. And he doesn't have to insinuate, and he doesn't have to try to guilt you. You ever hear that with quiet times? Jesus is waiting for you. He was waiting. But you went and had your breakfast, and Jesus was sitting there alone, (laughs) waiting for you to open your Bible, but no, you don't want to talk to him, and you might see Jesus wiping a little tear from his eye. (laughs) I wish to talk to me. I hope you enjoyed your breakfast. Physical food is more important than the Word of God. Oh, no, no, that's okay. That's fine. God doesn't use fear. He doesn't use obligation. He doesn't use guilt. God doesn't use fog. And it's kind of funny, but it's kind of not. Means him. He's far more powerful than that. If God's going to talk to you, he's not going to mutter or mumble. I think that's what Paul, Paul in this passage, I think, you know what he's in this passage in Romans? I think he's discouraging government resistance. I think that's what he's doing discouraging government resistance because they're being told you have to stand up to the Roman government and don't pay taxes and and you need to push on them because they're against Israel. And I I think what Paul's saying, you don't have to because God's in charge of Rome as well. And you don't have to stand against them and you don't have to picket and you don't have to not pay your taxes because God's in control. And at this point, it wasn't God's will that the nation of Israel be free. It will be. I'm not sure if we're going to see it in our time. Some of it came in the Six-Day War. Israel time is is coming. I don't know what it's like. But he will. But for for the time being, uh, that hasn't been his his objective up to this point. Uh, Paul is, I think, countering the Jewish pressure to free Israel. You know what ends up happening in, in Israel? It ended up being kind of a mess. There was a, a movement of zealots. Again, this some of you don't care about history, but some of you are interested, so 
Some of you fall asleep, and, and I'll wake you up at the end of it. There's a guy named John of Giscala in Israel. He was the leader of the Jewish zealot movement. Zealots favored armed rebellion against Rome. And you know what he believed? God will deliver Israel with the sword. He was a very strong man, very strong communicator. Um, and he's In the Bible, when there's a Gentile problem, what did David do? He got out his sword and dealt with it, and God was on his side. And God's going to raise up a son of David who's going to do the same. This is what John of Giscala said in the 50s and the 60s A.D., about the same time that Paul lived. He and his followers proclaimed that God would never allow Jerusalem and the temple to fall into Roman hands. Amen? God would never allow the city of Jerusalem to fall into Roman hands. Did he allow it to fall into Assyrian hands? Did he? No, he didn't. He'll never allow it to fall into Roman hands. And that's what John preached. And there were miracles that seemed to corroborate what he said. There was a star resembling a sword stood over the city and a comet that continued a whole year. That's what Josephus writes at the time. John looked at that. Did you see that sword? Did you see that comet? God's going to protect us. We need to overthrow Rome. The eastern gate of the inner court of the temple, brass, very heavy. Difficulty shutting it with 20 men. One time, opened by itself. John of Giscala, God came into the city. It's time for us to revolt against Rome. And Paul would have been being pushed. You need to get with them. About the ninth hour of the night, a light shone around the altar. It appeared to be daytime, and it lasted for a half an hour. Um, you know what ended up happening? He was wrong. They say that when the Romans attacked, when the Romans attacked Jerusalem, when the dust cleared, one million, one hundred thousand Jews were dead, and another ninety-seven thousand were prisoners believe that God is with our nation, and that's not exactly what God was doing. And Paul resisted, and what he wanted the Gentiles to know, God's in control. God's in control. Rule number one, what would the original readers have understood? I think he's encouraging them. You don't have to rebel against the Roman government. Number two, let Scripture interpret Scripture. There are places it says authorities have been, look what it says in Acts 6. Acts 4, I'm sorry. Uh, this is the Sanhedrin in, in Jerusalem. And by the way, the history lesson's over. You can wake up. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. This is the Jewish government now. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to no longer speak to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. This was the government put in place. What the government said to them, stop it. This is an order, a command. And this is what they said. Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves. 
whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. There was time. They rebelled against the authority of the government. There was time to do so. Um, application. What does this mean? What does this mean? Um, a couple ways we can apply this. Um, there's a couple threats when we think of one nation under God. Secular humanism is a threat. There's no absolute authority. God doesn't exist. This seems to be the ushering out of God, out of the affairs of people. Secular humanism is an issue. We hear about it often from the, from the pulpit. I'm going to introduce another one that I think Paul had to deal with in his day. Sacred legalism is equally dangerous. Do you agree? When we, to again, listen very carefully. I'm going to argue, and again, it's not a big argument, when you combine church and state and make them one, that could be dangerous. When there's no difference, because God is already over the nations, even those nations that don't believe in him. Would you agree? The deal was with Rome. That's a, there's no authority put in place that hasn't been put in place by God. Now, that doesn't mean that he's behind ISIS. But we can, at some level, trust in his sovereignty. Um, when there's church and state are too closely, when there's no separation, that's what Israel was like. They were a theocracy. So I, as a holy person, would have the police at my beck and call. There was no separation from church and state. And so if I wanted to get you to pay taxes, I'd send the police over to you, and you have to tithe. And in a place like that, they were able to execute Jesus. See it in the Roman Empire. Um, a little bit of history. In February 23rd of 303, the emperor said, enough of this. Uh, there was a bunch of persecutions, a bunch of famines, and what they believed, it's because these Christians aren't worshiping the emperor. So Diocletian sent an edict to arrest church leaders, use any means necessary to get them to sacrifice to the gods. And in Rome, there was wholesale slaughter. Then everything changed overnight. In October 28th of 312, the son of one of the rulers was preparing for battle. The next morning against one of his rivals for imperial power, he saw a great omen in the sky and then in a dream that promised him victory through Christ's sign. He saw a sign of the cross. Constantine ordered a copy of that sign, a staff with letters indicating Christ's name, to be emblazoned on a banner and to be carried into battle. He defeated his rival, and shortly afterwards he published an edict declaring Christianity is the state religion of Rome and allowing each person free. And so that's kind of where he, where he went. During the following decades, um, Constantine shifted the whole empire towards Christianity. What ended up happening? In the days when they were, I'm not arguing for church being persecuted, but they were very strong. But in the, in the age to follow when it became fashionable, the powerful embraced Christ. In a generation, the church went from being a persecuted church to being a persecuting church. And if you didn't dot your I this way and cross your T this way theologically, you were a heretic. And the church began to destroy itself. I'm not sure what to do with that. All I'm saying is when there's no separation at all between church and state, there 
there's a problem. I'll give you one more example. We can see it in our country. I live in, uh, grew up in Massachusetts and Saugus on the North Shore. There's Hammersmith, which was a Puritan before the uh, Constitution in the 1600s. I think Saugus was settled in 1627, I think, very early on. And there was some, there's a, a national park thing, Hammersmith, where they used to make um, mine. And, and anyways, um, north of where Saugus is, there's a sound called, there's a town called Salem. Heard of Salem. And um, in order to recruit young men to fight the Indians at that time, in order to fight King Philip's war, Many Puritan preachers taught the idea that Indians were acting in league with the devil. That's what they taught. Indians are in league with the devil, and, and they did that to get all kinds of people to fight the war. After the war ended, the Puritans were still preaching against the Indians as being connected to the devil. They grew increasingly obsessed with the idea that the devil is an omnipresent force, and he's bent on creating all these havoc. And then in 1692... Um, the Salem witch trials occurred where government officials can put religious people on trial because they were acting in ways that were somewhat strange, hundreds of them. And before the dust cleared, 20 individuals, mostly women, had been executed because the government was going to make sure to put an end to any anti-Christian stuff. You know what they found out in retrospect? That really what was up, there were some people fighting against one another and they used this. They even found out that the barley supply at the time had been tainted with a hallucinogenic substance. They grew up and people were having these visions of what this neighbor did and what this neighbor saw and and it was all this stuff that they were, they were tripping. They really were. They were tripping. And innocent women were executed. What am I saying? It's, it can be dangerous. Dangerous when church and state feuds. That's what do we do with all this? What does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? I think what's happening in this, in this text. I don't think Paul's saying... Idi Amin has been put in place by God. I think that stretches what the passage is about. This is written to believers. God's in control. In fact, what it says, and as we think about communion, is what Paul writes, a ritual that has been practiced in all kinds of cultures, still is today, communion. The people come to the table. They take the juice. They take the bread. Here's what Paul said. I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We live in a time between Jesus' first and second coming. What we think of when we come to the table we think of Christ's first coming, where he sacrifices himself so that we can be his sons and daughters. We can be sons and daughters of God himself. 
As we come to this table, you know what we also do? We are forecasting a time. There will be a feast in heaven with him. When Jesus has come a second time, and as we said, he won't come as a little child. This world will not end end because of war. There will be wars. It will end because God will bring this world to an end. And when he does so, there will be those who go to be with him, and they talk about some kind of feast where we sit around the table as children of an eternal empire that no one can ever conquer. That empire will never be dark, and you won't be able to find any tears in this empire. None. There'll be no pain, no suffering, and there'll be a meal. We'll sit down at this meal together, and we'll begin eternity. That's what this celebration, it looks back on what Jesus did. It looks ahead to a feast that all children of God will experience with him. So it's as we sandwich now between his first and second coming, this feast teaches us to look back at God so loving the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal existence. And we look ahead to the feast that will mark the beginning of eternal existence. So when you when you take the bread and take the juice, we're going to um, have some music. I want you to think about those two feasts and where you are, what God did to enable you to be part of his family and what that will mean in the future. And at the time where you choose, eat the bread, drink the juice, and think about life eternal with God. pray for us. Father, thank you for um, your sovereignty. Again, stuff like this, a passage that's not clean, it's not neat. There's questions that we have. There's difficulties. We wonder why do you allow this? Why you allow that? Why we can land on communion. There's some it's clean. Ultimately, your will will prevail. There will be an eternal kingdom. And that kingdom will never fail will never be overturned. There won't be any hunger. So I guess in this side of that, would you help us to be the sons and daughters you would want us to be? Help us to become like your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Again, if you can hang out and...